Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we continue our Classical Conversation series with Jeremy Carl. He's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. He was the U.S. Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior in the Trump administration. He's been a researcher at the Hoover Institution, and his writing has appeared in publications as important as The American Mind and the Claremont Review of Books, and he has sometimes graciously stooped to write for small rags like the New York Times. He often posts beautiful pictures of the great state of Montana, and I'm excited to learn from him about a wide array of political topics, uh, namely Hungary, a right-wing or conservative approach to conservation, immigration, and finally, uh, Christian nationalism. Jeremy, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on. Um, so maybe just as like a vague preliminary thing to say first, I've noticed from listening you know, to your other interviews, um, you're incredibly amiable when you discuss controversial topics. You know, like a lot of people um, imagine right-wing figures as sort of cold, vicious human beings. But you come across as very warm and that you just, you know, want good things to happen to everybody. Um, but, but you know that we can't make policy around helping the entire world. And so we have to be thoughtful, right. like, you know, how, like, yeah, making the lives of our own better to make them actually better at all. Instead of just, you know, maybe yeah. sending mosquito nets everywhere or something like that. Like, yeah, well, I try to be a happy warrior. I can't say that I always achieve it. I mean, sometimes you certainly... Uh, look out at the world and there's there's uh, eminent cause for despair. But I think that often certainly um, discouraging our own side doesn't do any good. Mm -hmm. uh, my own life is pretty great uh, out mm -hmm. here in Montana. I've got a great wife. I've got five healthy kids and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, just to get to en enjoy being out here. So it's hard for you to complain about my personal circumstances. And I certainly do want folks to realize that, uh, right-wingers, at least speaking personally, I mean, we're not out to kind of go make anybody else's lives miserable. We want to make our lives great. We want to make the country great. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're happy to work with, with folks who, you know, have that in mind. And if we have to challenge folks or get aggressive who uh, want to work against that, then we'll do it. But mm -hmm. um, my, my first instinct is always to try to reach out and see if I can work with somebody until you find out that maybe you can, or maybe you can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, at any rate, yeah, I admire uh, your ability to speak about these things uh, with warmth. And I've actually found generally speaking, when I meet people who, uh, you know, broadly speaking, agree about these things that they are generally really warm and generous people. So, um, but so you, when I was first messaging you about, you know, doing this interview, you had noted that you were in uh, Hungary at the time. And, and from what I understand, You'd visited the Danube Institute uh, last year as well. And who knows, maybe other times than that. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what the Danube Institute is first? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a think tank in Hungary. And I, I visited about two years before as well for a period of several weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of a few uh, prominent, really probably one of the two uh, most prominent uh, kind of institutions in Hungary in which a lot of uh, foreigners, particularly conservatives, tend to spend time. Mm -hmm. It's a think tank. It's le led by a guy named John O'Sullivan, who is a person, if you're, particularly if you're an older conservative, a name that will be very familiar to a lot of folks. He was one of Thatcher's top aides uh, as a Brit, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, kind of intimately involved in putting together her memoirs. And more importantly, from a U.S. perspective, uh, he was the longtime editor at National Review, at a time when NR was kind of pretty much the only game in town mm -hmm. for conservative publications. And under his stewardship, it was a great deal more uh, conservative than unfortunately it's kind of become today mm -hmm. uh, at times. But he's a very distinguished guy. He knows a lot of people um, throughout the conservative world. And he kind of runs things and invites various folks who he thinks would bring something to the Institute to uh, go out there and give talks. And we have dinners and it's sort of, think it's kind of a, a more luxurious version of the typical think tank life, if you will. I mean, not that it's obscenely luxurious, but it's a, it's a nice time and it's always fun to go to a beautiful city like Budapest. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you meet people from, from all around the world coming in. I had, I had a dinner when I was there, not this time, but last time with the former Australian prime minister, Tony Abbott, who was in for something. Mm -hmm. So just a, a few people. And uh, uh, in, invariably when you show up in Budapest right now, it's become such a magnet for, conservatives that you will run into 
random people you know from conservative world in the U.S. You had no idea um, were actually in Budapest until uh, you just kind of crossed paths. So it's a it's a fun place to be uh, right now for uh, conservatives because it does have one of the few actual uh, effective right wing leaders in the world right now in Viktor Orban. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, is it like a, a sort of look in Hungary, we actually, you know, have a conservative leader who's willing to use power to, um, I guess, like put in place actual conservative policies and that not that everybody in Hungary is conservative or anything along those lines, but that there is like right. some level of popularity for Orban and that is it sort of like to help other countries replicate the same kind of thing that happened in Hungary? Is that like its purpose? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for Hungary, what they kind of get out of people coming in is of course, there's a soft power element of it for them. And that uh, it certainly, um, when you spend time there, it predisposes you generally favorably uh, to um, the kind of experiments that are going on there. And I'm not uncritical. I mean, I don't want to, there are certainly plenty of things that are wrong Uh, with Hungary. And there are plenty of things even that are right that we can't replicate in the US. But to kind of touch back on your earlier point, I mean, the value of spending time there is to see a a conservative leader who's been very serious about the kind of understanding of power and how you use it and not been afraid to use it Mm -hmm. on behalf of conservative principles. and that is something that often the kind of overly intellectual, overly abstracted, um, overly libertarian American right has not always been as good at. Um, we lost, of course, somebody from a similar school, though there, there are also some pretty profound differences. And in, in Henry Kissinger, just uh, yesterday, a guy who uh, I shouldn't say a guy, it's too, too informal, but uh, <laughs> uh, I knew Kissinger uh, somewhat. I met him on a number of occasions, and he was, again, a person who... Certainly uh, a number of things that he did that I did not agree with, but but he also did a number of things on balance that I think made the world better. And he was a master of real politique. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, the, the very serious study of what prudential statesmanship uh, looked like. And he didn't always get it right, but he always, I think, did have what he saw as the American interest in mind. Uh, and I think Orban, Orban is hungry first, somebody like Trump has always been very America first. And I think uh, in general, that type of nationalist um, realism is, is a welcome thing in the world and something I think we've lost too much of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like um, it's been a little while since I had read, I think maybe Kissinger's first book, was it a uh, world restored? Um, yeah. You you may know better than me. I've, I've only read his shorter material. I actually just ordered the other day uh, his book, sort of grand book on diplomacy and its history, just because I thought I should uh, read it. But uh, I, I don't think that I've ever actually read any longer things from, from him. I'm more familiar with him just having spoken with him personally. And, and obviously uh, I'm too young to have really watched him when he was in office, but, but the, you know, his reputation and the things that he did on the world stage were certainly notable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that, lesson from that book that I sort of took away and like sort of think is probably just a permanently true thing is that, I don't know, he seemed to suggest that like, you know, the best statesmen and diplomats really actually try to under, I mean, this is in some sense a basic point, but that to understand other nations and countries as they understand themselves, first of all, so that you can speak to them from inside like their own like set of opinions on something. So like when people talk about like the Russia Ukraine war or something along those lines and just like say, this is just the battle of good and evil. It's like that's right. you know, obviously an oversimplification. Like you could say that one side right. is worse than the other or something along those lines. But if you really try right. to understand Putin as he understood himself and his sense of like the Russian national interest, you could sure. at least understand why he would do it, even if you didn't like the fact that he had done it. Right. Yeah. No, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. And it's just we live in this very deeply, deeply unserious time. Um, I think, unfortunately, American foreign policy in the hangover from the Cold War was really infected by neoconservatism and the cold war was a sort of fairly unique, I think historical situation in which there were some pretty clear demarcations of good and evil, even if there were, um, there were certainly profoundly unsavory guys that we worked with at times. Um, But 
that's not generally the way that um, foreign policy goes. And then even when you're dealing with with evil people, sometimes you can do great things for the world and the cause of world peace by dealing with them again, as they understand themselves, understanding their interests. That's what Kissinger did when he went to China and managed to really pry apart or take advantage of a, a fissure that had already begun to develop mm-hmm. between China and Russia. And in doing that kind of began to integrate China into the global system, taking it out of isolation um, and and kind of prying it away from the Soviet sphere. And he did that despite the fact that, of course, Mao was a murderous and awful person, but that was the person who we needed to deal with. And that was the country that we needed to deal with. Mm-hmm. And that was what American interests demanded we deal with. And again, that type of realist thinking is unfortunately, when you see how we talk about Russia or the Middle East, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, is not always at the forefront of how we do things today. Right. Right. So, so then going back a step back to Hungary, um, Viktor Orban, he's been the the prime minister of Hungary since 2010. And he was also brief or like served a term from 1998 to 2002. Um, and well, I guess maybe I'll ask this like first is, um, how similar is Hungary to the United States or maybe to put it differently, like one, when Orban won in 2010, what was, do do you have any sense of what the political climate was like or what, what was the social or political situation like in Hungary? Was it, was he, and I know very, very little about this. I mean, was he sort of looking at it from like, Oh, we're, we're taking this back from the progressives or was it sort of like a 50 50 kind of split there? Or like, what, what did things look like? Well, it was interesting, and, and I think this history is important. And first of all, there are just enormous differences. I mean, Hungary is about a quarter the size of Montana. So <laughs> it's it's a small, now it has 10 million people, so it's not, and it has a sort of greater Hungarian cultural map because they lost 70% of its territory in the wake of World War One and Two. So it has um, a kind of broader cultural and historical footprint than it has a political footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, today, but it's a much smaller place and a much less populous place, and it can't truly act as a fully independent actor in the realm of international relations. Mm-hmm. And Orban's very aware of that. And Orban's background, it's sort of funny because he was originally the kind of great hero of all the democratizers because he was probably the most prominent student dissident in Hungary against the communists, and he became sort of this big hero because of that and was really bold. And um, was sort of allied with the first post-communist government, but not sort of part of it. And then he became prime minister, as you touched on, in 2002 to 2006, and then was unexpectedly upset. And he kind of had originally governed as a kind of classical liberal without a serious, I think, theory of power. Mm -hmm. And when he got back in, having been replaced by the corrupt socialists who were really deeply related to the communists who had previously governed Hungary, I think he had a much more serious theory of power and how power worked and the need to really exercise power on behalf of the American or the Hungarian (laughs) nation rather. Um, And so he sort of did things and he did things to cement his institutional power and the institutional power of his party again, in ways that are very foreign to the way that, say, the American right has historically talked about things where, you know, the idea is we're going to get government small enough that we're going to be able to throw it away in a wastebasket or something. Right. And I think Orban much more maturely understood that government was kind of a given and say, hey, what would it be like if we actually controlled the institutions Mm -hmm. in a way that the left in almost all other countries tends to control institutional power? Right. So, so what institutions did Orban think were most important to sort of like recapture or to move? I mean, I think um, hasn't he universities and the media uh-huh. uh, would be two of them. Um, and, and again, those weren't directly, but there were a variety of things. And again, he, he, he did things where he was able to get a democratic supermajority in the Hungarian legislature and that allowed him to make certain constitutional changes. Mm-hmm. And basically he did things that allowed them to um, get a lot of funding for conservative universities uh, in Hungary. Uh, this is MCC is kind of the principal <laughs> thing of this. And then he, 
he did things where he was able to um, not directly with the government, but he's able to bolster um, kind of conservative media in Hungary mm-hmm. um, and marginalize to a degree left-wing media. And again, a lot of his opponents have screamed bloody murder about this, but but the reality is, mm-hmm. for the most part, all he's done is he's done effectively for the right what has happened in the left for the left in countries mm-hmm. like the United States. Um, right. Except that, of course, it's actually much more balanced because if you go to Hungary. Uh, and again, I was just there. You can see all sorts of things, very critical of Orban among the major media. I went to a film that was extremely anti-Orban that was playing in theaters. Um, you would never get a sort of mainstream pro-Hollywood, uh, you know, Hollywood pro-Trump or pro-DeSantis mm-hmm. um, feature like you saw of this anti-Orban feature in Hungary. Um, so it's mm-hmm. just, uh, as the left likes to say, if you've sort of been privileged long enough equality looks like discrimination and so um orban has brought that equality to hungary and the left you know feels like that's discrimination because they're very used to ruling the roost Mm -hmm. interesting so to maybe ask at least or maybe maybe just one more question about hungary um and since this crosses over with some of the other work that you've done on the united states with respect to immigration do you have a sense of like what Orban's immigration policy is like how, how is Hungary compared to, I don't know, any other European country when it comes to like refugees or mass migration or things like that? Well, it's actually good that you asked that and I should have probably led with it. I mean, that's really been one of the distinctive features of Orban and I actually, my major speech there. And if you Google Jeremy Carl Danube Institute, you can kind of pull it up. It's on YouTube right now Mm -hmm. was, uh, I'm talking about American migration, but but Orban has been very aggressive about Hungary is going to be for Hungarians. They are not going to become a migration nation. They don't care what the EU says. They've built a border wall on their non-EU border, mm-hmm. um, but they've also strictly resisted sorts of refugee resettlement and things like that. And so I think they have been very aggressive in understanding that borders, language, culture, you know, these are things that make a nation and that they don't want to just become this undifferentiated mass of people from all over the world. Right. Uh, I think all throughout Europe and certainly in the United States, we are seeing the negative consequences of not taking that approach. And so it's really migration has been one of the main things where I think Orban has done things ideologically, intellectually, and practically that are inspiring to American conservatives and conservatives elsewhere in Europe. Right. Yeah. Just like thinking about um, in light of like Israel, Gaza kind of stuff right now, just seeing in the United States, there being, you know, rallies that are either for Israel or for Gaza and, you know, watching disruption that that somehow we've like imported a foreign conflict into our own borders with respect to tensions. Like that doesn't seem good. Right. No, absolutely. And, and obviously, um, you know, the Palestinian pro-Palestinian forces seem to be particularly hostile to America, to whites generally, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wouldn't place them exactly equivalently, sure. but at the same sure. time, I mean, your, your broader point, I absolutely agree with, which is why are we importing this foreign conflict into the United States? And if you go back and read the founders and folks like John Quincy Adams, and Alexander Hamilton, or Quincy Adams not being a founder, but, but of that early generation, um, they were explicitly worried about this sort of thing in the context of immigration. And again, um, you know, we've just totally lost the plot, as the Brits would say, in terms of how we deal with that today as a nation. Yeah, maybe I could read a quote from your, maybe we can go a little bit out of order of what we initially talked about, the outline and kind of return to something. But sure. in your your article or your essay, The Nuclear Option, Transforming America's Failed Immigration Policy, which is an Arthur Millick's new book, Up from Conservatism, which is like an outstanding book. Um, just so, so good at showing how conservatives have been, to some extent, like their minds have been captured by like leftist goals and their sure. like conservative policies to bring about ultimately like left wing results. But, but at any rate, just to go to directly what you had just said, you had quoted Teddy Roosevelt saying uh, this, the one absolutely certain way of bringing this nation to ruin 
of preventing all possibility of its continuing to be a nation of nation at all would be to permit it to become a tangle of squabbling nationalities. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of something you say very early in the essay, but um, it seems quite true. And it seems like this is something that to some extent we've, we've done to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, we sort of accept this as somehow that this is okay or normal and it shouldn't, we shouldn't accept it. Part of, I think, the mental change that the right needs to make is to just withdraw. We, as the left would say, we, we don't want to normalize this. There's nothing that should feel normal about the situation that we're in. Um, in my Danube talk and in other essays I've written, but I think I distill it very nicely in the Danube talk for any of your listeners who want to go listen to that talk. I'll certainly I kind of walk through the history of American immigration, starting with the lost colony in 1585 mm-hmm. uh, and going up to the present day and sort of show how our ideology around immigration that we are taught today bears very little resemblance to the actual reality of American immigration history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so in this essay, um, you, you note also near the, the outset of it that America will not survive in any meaningful sense if we do not get control of our border and develop a will for national life and unified American identity. That seems yeah. to me 100% true. Um, and, and so the stakes are very high for getting this right. Um, so yeah. thinking about whether wh- – I guess it doesn't even have to mirror Hungary's approach to this, although maybe it could, but – is there any like low hanging fruit? So if Trump is able, you know, to get back into the White House, or if somehow some yeah. other serious candidate emerges, is there any like low hanging fruit that you could see sort of like being actualized, you know, close to day one, or things along those lines? I, I think you just have to get totally serious about deporting people, mm-hmm. and you have to not let these judges thwart you, and you need to have an office of legal counsel that's ready to go, that's ready to come up with the right legal opinions that is going to dramatically um, stop these lawless judges from attempting to um, interfere with what is the constitution clearly spells out as the president's prerogative, which is to decide, uh, you know, who's here legally and and who isn't and how that's going to be conducted. I mean, that, that doesn't mean of course, you know, they can't just strip citizenship from people arbitrarily, obviously. Right. But I think if we just, if we deported, to the best of our ability, every illegal that was here, or even 70% or 80% of the illegals who were here, and made it really clear that there's no future for you here mm-hmm. if you're illegal, that's going to send a message that is going to dramatically decrease uh, the numbers to not just well below where Biden is, but well low below the the sort of much lower numbers we'd had under Trump. And at that point um, you could begin to recohere a national identity around the people who are here. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be, unfortunately the the horse has left the barn. Mm -hmm. This is not going to be just the same country that we were pre the heart seller immigration law of 1965. We've got um, new groups here that we didn't have in numbers. Mm -hmm. We have to figure out how to, to integrate all of those groups. Um, into one people. Uh, I see that as kind of a non-negotiable thing. I mean, there are people who have sort of more ambitious kind of far right things that I think that they're not always very honest about what the implications are of doing them or the really unacceptability of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, I take for granted that basically we have to get as close to zero new immigration as we can, and then begin to recohere over a few decades, a unified national identity. And I think that's the right, way to go. Right. It makes sense. I mean, that you need, especially the newcomers, like since the Heart Sellers Act and other, you know, new citizens to like have time to digest them in some sense, to give them sure. some sort of like, unif- like to, to help them become part of some unified national purpose. Right. And, and yeah, and it, and it makes a lot of sense that, yeah, you'd have, so do, do you think it's possible for the American people to have the stomach to accept this? Because that makes a lot of sense to me that if you do that, even just if you just do it once, you, if you deport 70 percent of the people who are here illegally, which is to say it's a person breaking like our laws, 
Yeah. And like, yeah, I guess, I mean, I think that's right that it would send the message of like, okay, well you can't do this. Probably it would lower it and you'd only have to do it once. um, Yeah. Seems that's right. But do you think that, yeah. Is is there any way to (laughs) prepare us to have the stomach to do that kind of thing? I mean, because you can, the left is going to absolutely scream. Right. And this is where it kind of does come back to Orban is you you just need to have the iron. You need to have the will. Mm -hmm. You need to say, this is what we're going to do. We are the elected government. This is what we ran on. This is what we said we're going to do. This is the legal option. And and we're just going to do it. And you can create facts on the ground. And, you know, if if we put folks on an airplane to some other country Mm -hmm. and we've made some arrangement with some other country that they're going to accept those people, Mm -hmm. hopefully accepting their citizens back, but maybe in some situations we end up with some sort of paid arrangement with a third country to take uh, folks who will not go back to their own nations. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you just create the reality and then the left can scream all they want, but, right. but it's there. Um, and that's certainly kind of always how the left has operated. They, they tend to just create facts on the ground and then the right complains on them and <laughs> yells about the constitution and nothing really changes. So I think we need to have that, mentality and it's it's a really uh you know it's it's kind of storming the beach at normandy that's the uh mm-hmm. the attitude we have to have and and we're going to take some casualties and i mean that hopefully only metaphorically but uh right um uh you know it's going to be it's going to be tough but that's that's what's necessary and if we don't you know if we're not willing to do that we should just leave the country and hand over the keys to the left because <laughs> you know we've got no hope so that's yeah. that's sort of how I view it. It's it's not even black pill. It's just that's where we are. Right. Wow. That's powerful. Um, and and so it's it's almost like the left will scream no matter what the right does. So even if you merely build up a wall and even just part of yeah. a wall, like that's already fascism or something like that. So then, right. If you're, if you're a fascist, no matter what you do, then you might as well do the thing that is the best for your people to take care of them and say like, yeah, well, I'm a fascist no matter what. So we're gonna go all the way in doing what's like ultimately healthy for the, this polity to like, because you can't have a yeah. nation that's not somehow in some sense feeling as if it's unified, not, you know, just having this polyglot group of factions that don't speak the same language like that. That's just yeah. going to break up. So if you want this to remain as it is to be, you know, a relatively free country or in the future, you know, like as free as it's meant to be, then you have to, you have to do big things. You have to like be thinking, you yeah. have to think about how to win. Um, and this is your, your proposal is like, this is how, how you would win, um, as opposed to just like, well, how do we compromise and sort of, you know, make sure that people like us after this is over? It's like, no, we want to win. And yeah. this makes a lot yeah. of sense. Well, you've really hit on the key insight. And it's amazing to me the degree to which our elected officials fail to understand this, which is you're a Nazi anyway. I mean, as soon as Mitt Romney was a Nazi, you know, <laughs> it's like. It does, John McCain was a Nazi, right? And so, um, and of course, I'm, I'm saying this just in the mind of the left and in the rhetoric of the left, right. not, of course, in any actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you just, you go do what you want to do anyway and what's the right thing to do and what's the legal thing to do. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to scream much more than they're already screaming. <laughs> you know, you do the most innocuous stuff that's clearly within the law, within custom, in the national interest, and they scream as if it's Hitler invading Poland. Right. Um, so, you know, at that point, just go do everything. Go do <laughs> all the stuff that you want to do because you're going to take the hit. Right. So you might as well get the benefit. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, good. So, okay, so you talked about Hungary discussed immigration. Maybe we could come around to something else that you've done since you have such, you know, uh, like a remarkable career of thinking about all sorts of things. And, but more importantly, I think maybe doing um, lots of things. So um, during the Trump administration, as I said before, you were the U S deputy assistant secretary of the interior. Um, I've, I've tried to read as much as I could about this department, although government websites are very bad. Like they're very bad at like imparting <laughs> yeah. information to you, um, which is what I thought they were supposed to do. Um, but from what I understand from, you know, reading these things, um, you would have worked on policy related to our natural resources, maybe natural parks, um, 
sure. other similar concerns. So in the mainstream media, it appears that like only the left cares about the environment, cares about green things or whatever. But yeah. this is not true. This is not true at all. Yeah. So could you say a little bit about what a right wing or a conservative approach to the environment or energy could look like? Like what what makes sense as an energy policy? Or are there any low hanging fruit here or or not even low hanging sure. fruit? Just like how do you win? Just anything you have to say about what that would look like? Sure. And and just as a preface, I mean, I've had, as you kind of implicitly have noted a little bit, I've had a few different careers. And in fact, most of my formal training academically um, has little to do uh, with a lot of the things I do today, um, which were really things that became were personal passions that kind of became a career. But my academic training in graduate school at, at Harvard and Stanford was in environment and resource policy. And I've, I've written pretty extensively mm-hmm. about those in, in, uh, in books and in uh, magazine articles. And that was why the administration ultimately ended up reaching out to me. And while I was uh, at Interior, I uh, supervised and overlooked the, uh, the Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also did some things on climate policy and, and other things like that. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think one thing that you certainly appreciate, uh, you know, up, up here where I'm living in Montana, mm-hmm. um, I'm surrounded by, of course, this is a conservative state. Uh, this area is a conservative area, broadly the Northern Rockies. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet everybody here, uh, for the most part, is really passionate about um, nature and the environment kind of in a non-ideological way. That's why we live here. I mean, you don't live in Montana for the great restaurants or the Broadway shows <laughs> or things like that um, or the big cities. I mean, you live in it because you love being around nature and uh, I you know, look out over the Bridger mountains from my windows. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really nice. Um, and uh, so I think that, that it, this has been a, a great piece of left-wing, largely propaganda. I mean, there are some things, there, there are some elements of truth and that we do have, um, you know, there's sort of some more resource only Republicans out there, but, you know, I've got to say in, in the department of the interior, when I was there, Mm-hmm. The number of people who I encountered who, you know, only took the approach of like, oh, let's just let's just drill, baby drill. And we don't care about any other <laughs> consequences of anything. It was almost zero. Right. Um, everybody was trying to judiciously and prudentially value and balance um, how much are we going to care for environment here versus how much might we extract a resource or how much are we going to give to human use in a particular place versus how much do you just leave in its totally wild state. Mm-hmm. And, and we tried to balance these prudentially. And in fact, it's sort of the left that won't balance these things prudentially that just sort of takes a very extremist view, quite frankly, on not utilizing resources, not developing natural resources, mm-hmm. not letting there be um, human use in the national parks or wildlife refuges in the ways that, I think would make a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. so it's really that prudential balancing that um, distinguishes, I think, a conservative approach to the environment or on climate. I mean, we did stuff. And again, I'm, I'm deeply familiar with climate policy, climate models in a way that, frankly, even most of the professional staff, um, senior professional staff uh, were not, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I think, put me in an unusual position. Mm-hmm. as a Republican political, because in that department, because it's not that typical. Mm-hmm. But I would just, you know, I would see the misuse of these models, um, the misuse and abuse of climate policy quite frequently, mm-hmm. and just trying to take us to take a balanced approach to these sorts of things. I, I think that's what a, a properly construed conservative environmental or energy policy looks like. So what, what do you think that, it, like, what do you, conservatives like what ought they like what should they know about the climate models that they don't know or like how <laughs> how should they like approach this kind of thing because it seems like most of the models that i you know know of it seems like in some sense there's always like a faster you know like things yeah. are going to get like really bad in 20 years but they've been saying that for like a long time yeah and it's not as if like maybe nothing's happening i mean even just like if you took a non-scientific common sense approach and you right. just looked at your car and you see like, well, that's like shooting stuff out of it that looks gross. And I cough when right. I breathe it. 
you might think that if the, there was a lot of that in the air, that might be bad. <laughs> like, so right. even, even if you don't be science, even if one is not scientific about it, I can see it in a common sense way that maybe right. there's something bad happening, but it doesn't right. seem also to be as bad as the left says it is. So right. could, you, could you offer some kind of, I know this is a kind of a big question in a way, but you right. might be familiar with some of these things. What would be a more sober way to look at this situation with respect to the climate? Well, well, particularly climate. I mean, the left just gets hysterical and there's all sorts of different failure points in terms of the left's policy here. There's a failure point at the level of the models, which is there's great uncertainties and there still remain great uncertainties in modeling the atmosphere and climate. OK, that's just at the at the most basic level. And I think, yeah, we've gotten better, but there's still a lot to go. Mm-hmm. Then you have to go. From that, because it's fine. Okay, so you let's let's pretend for a second that we can model that reasonably well over a long period of time. We can't, but let's pretend we can. Um, mm-hmm. Then you've got to go to how does that interact with the economy, and that's mm-hmm. an even more kind of hypothetical, uh, theoretical sort of model. And again, when you get into these, I debated Bill Nordhaus who at Yale, who won the Nobel Prize for his kind of modeling and work in this area. Mm-hmm. And I actually think Bill is, is, is actually a pretty reasonable guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't make totally ridiculous claims, but his models are such a oversimplification. That's not even a criticism. I mean, it would be irresponsible for them not to be an oversimplification. So mm-hmm. you're adding an uncertainty on top of an uncertainty. And then you've got to consider, okay, well, we're the U S and we are 12% in falling of global emissions and China is 35% and rising and all these other people mm. are rising. So even if we do all these dramatic things, uh, you know, what is it, what effect is it really going to have on the trajectory? And what it comes down to is uh, there's just, there's just a lot of BS. There's no like sort of more graceful way to say it um, mm-hmm. that goes into these sorts of things. There's a lot of lack of realism. I do think that there are things that we can do and are doing in terms of developing um, renewable and other alternative forms of energy, also hopefully pushing nuclear, which we have not done right. uh, well enough. And I've written a couple books on. Um, mm-hmm. I think those are things that that we can do and deploy globally in ways that will help. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not they're not silver bullets. But mm-hmm. I think the reality is we're also just we're going to have to live with a degree of climate change, and we can do that. By the way, mm-hmm. um, the chances that this is going to be some utter catastrophe for humanity are just based on everything we know, which is also, this again gets kind of very technical, but you begin to look at the RCP 8.5 scenario, which is a, Could you uh, say, uh, I don't know what RCP is. No, I know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just citing it to show that I can get into this technical jargon yeah. for any liberals who want to, you know, mention it, but it's, it's sort of, when you look at a lot of the crazy, alarming things that liberals say are going to happen with the climate. They're based on this, what's called an RCP 8.5 scenario that assumes certain things about the responsiveness of the atmosphere and the amount of fossil fuels that we're going to deploy globally. Mm -hmm. And it's really clear that at this point that that's just never going to happen. It's a fantasy. Um, It's we're way, way off trajectory to do it. And so when you begin to look at scenarios that are at all more likely in terms of emissions suddenly everything begins to look less alarming, even if you buy into their models mm-hmm. for which you should, as I would argue, have a great deal of skepticism. So there's a great deal of pseudoscience. And in fact, I think part of the frustration is that a lot of the fake policy on climate, uh, and again, it's not that I don't think that it, sh- it should be something that we should worry about from a, uh, you know, even a creation care perspective as a Christian. Um, mm-hmm. I do think it's, it's something we should pay attention to. Um but there's there's limits to what we can do. Um, and I think often climate tends to suck away attention from a lot of much more real um, and immediate environmental concerns in our own neighborhood, mm-hmm. whether those be about uh, deforestation or water quality or air quality or or you know how we can give better access to public lands. And I think those things tend to be more tractable. And they tend to hit people more immediately in, in areas where their quality of life is impacted. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, something uh, that just suddenly came to mind is like Curtis Yarvin had written 
Well, he wrote a couple articles for the American Mind, although he didn't finish his series. Um, I don't want to speculate too much on why he didn't finish the series. I did wonder he was about to – he was supposed – the next article in the Clearpill series was supposed to be a critique of conservatism. And I wonder if like he didn't want to really critique it at a place where – you know, like at Claremont where like everybody knows like a lot about the American founding in that – I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot to say about that. I actually don't know at all why he didn't. Maybe he just got busy or whatever. Yeah. But it was striking to me that he criticized – he wrote the initial article, criticized progressives which everybody wanted yeah. to see anyway. Didn't get to the throne. But but that's that's maybe an aside. Um, the, you can say something or not. But the, the thing is, that in his critique of progressivism, that article, he noted that um, in some sense, like if you approached climate change from the perspective of like power and you wanted to accrue as much meaningfulness or something like that to yourself, or like you, you, want, to, you want to matter. And if you wanted to matter... Right. And you had control, you know, or at least some control over like climate measures. Wouldn't you want to do something where you were able to curb, you know, the activity of like, you know, 300 million human beings? Like, wouldn't that be sure. a meaningful thing to do? And for those people who really care about doing these like very small things, then they get to participate in this power and it's, their lives become more sure. meaningful to themselves. And but but then you are saying like, well, wait, but shouldn't we just and, and he says, I think the same thing, like, wouldn't it be better to. Yeah, look, well, he doesn't, I guess, say this particular thing, but you're saying we should look at these local concerns. We can actually care a lot about the environment and do a lot locally, but it's like, it doesn't feel as important to like clean up your lake or like figure out a way to like clean the water supply. It just sounds less, sure. less fun or something. Right. Well, I, I've known Curtis for, oh gosh, like 12, 13 years now, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe even longer since his blog was a very small thing and and he's a brilliant guy he's an incredibly yes. incisive um analyst of power i don't always agree with him uh mm-hmm. and i think i'd probably speak for a lot of folks at claremont <laughs> in terms of maybe kind of what the shape of the regime ultimately looks like mm-hmm. um but but he's very very good to read to kind of understand and critique kind of the methods in which power is really exercised in our current regime mm-hmm. and that's one of the many reasons that he's He's worth reading, and as you know, as far as the series goes, I, I wasn't um, kind of a part of some of those editorial conversations. But I think Curtis is a guy who um, you're not going to tell him kind of what to do. And I think <laughs> Claremont at the American Mind, in particular, we very much pushed the envelope in terms of having some anons and some people like Curtis, who are not kind of strictly conservative movement people, right. um, contribute because we want to expose our readers to those ideas because we think they're interesting and important and they have traction among people who we kind of have 70 or 80 percent agreement with mm-hmm. um but but you know it may have just gone too far where curtis wanted to say something that we didn't want institutionally in our pages but he's you know curtis is still a friend absolutely and he's still friends with lots of uh folks over at claremont and so uh you know and, and a very interesting guy and right. and worth reading and i think his his comments on the environment um, certainly reflect that and reflect my own views as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So maybe turning to one sort of like last big topic. I mean, we've already talked about, you know, many big topics of which I know that you have more to say, but um, you wrote an essay very recently for American mind on Christian nationalism. Um, mm, sort of yeah. On like, well, should you have godless nationalism, you know, or Christian yeah. nationalism? Because in some sense, it's like one or the other. And um, so some one of the first things that you note in the article, or like the big case you make in the first half is something like Christian nationalism has actually been tried in the United States. Yeah. Would you be willing to say a little bit about that first? Like when, yeah, like how did, how did it look at first? Or like, yeah, what did it look sure. like at the beginning? Well, I should start by saying, uh, yeah, the editors, uh, particularly Spencer Clavin, who's a really terrific guy and a brilliant, brilliant writer and editor, kind of came to me and asked me to write about this. And I think they did it partially because it was outside of the stuff I spend all my time reading about. I mean, I am a very active uh, Christian. I'm in the PCA, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not a person who's been writing about that the whole time. And I think they'd had a lot of people who were real insiders to this debate who kind of took part in it. Uh, every day. And I think there's always value to kind of getting 
a little bit of a layperson's perspective. And sometimes that layperson kind of comes in and says, uh, hmm, the, the emperor doesn't really seem to be wearing very much, mm -hmm. right? So I think that was maybe part of why they'd asked me to speak about this. But in kind of doing research for the piece, and uh, some of which I was already familiar with, the the Christian nationalist um, history of the U.S. is very clear. And it started out with um, we had religious qualification for offices at the state level. <laughs> and that actually even existed up until, believe it or not, that was legal until 1960 Whoa. when the Supreme Court overturned that. Mm -hmm. um, we had state churches in America up until 1833. There were nine official state churches when the founding happened. Um, and so this kind of notion that we had this strict separation of church and state is just like our immigration policy. It's really, it's a product of ideology and not a product of reality. I mean, the, the reality is the American government, um, mostly at the state level, because there are clear um, constitutional restrictions on having a, federal religion. What happened was ultimately over time, the Supreme Court somewhat dubiously, in my view, starting in the 1940s and through the 1970s, as part of kind of the radical left Supreme Court, began chipping away at that and saying, oh, all of this is incorporated uh, against the states as well. So states can't do these things. But that was not really ever the intention of the government. We've lived in a very Christian environment. And again, even the things that are often cited against that um, most uh, most prominently around the founding. Thomas Jefferson, who was the most irreligious of the founders, talking in a letter to the Danbury Baptists, uh, which of course was not an official government document, but he talks about a wall of separation between church and state. Well, the Danbury Baptists were very religious. They just weren't happy that in Connecticut, they were not uh, the favored church. Mm -hmm. So they weren't getting benefits. <laughs> Jefferson is kind of giving them him them a diplomatic uh, response that didn't maybe necessarily reflect the broader view of people uh, working at that time uh, in American government. And then kind of most famously also when it talks about the, um, the United States government not being founded in any sense on the Christian religion, well, that was in the Treaty of Tripoli, which was one of the first, if not the first treaties that we ever signed as a nation. And it was with a Muslim power. <laughs> so again, we were sort of engaging in, if you will, Kissingerian realist diplomacy mm. of, it's not that we weren't actually founded on the Christian religion. And in fact, in the Treaty of Paris, as I, I mentioned in this, this piece, which is I think called Christian nationalism or godless nationalism at the American mind, you can go read it. Mm -hmm. Um, at the Treaty of Paris, when we ended the Revolutionary War, it starts out um, saying, in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, etc. <laughs> so it was just sort of assumed um, that that was how things were done. And so, but even well beyond that, and even into the 20th century, there was all sorts of prayer in schools, there were mm -hmm. Christian songs being read in schools, there was all sorts of things where nobody saw it as an inappropriate invasion of the government into the uh, religious field for there to be all sorts of religion and even Christian religion in the public square. And what we've done instead now is we've essentially legislated an atheist public square. Mm -hmm. And I think my big point and the point of, uh, because I'm not a hardcore Christian nationalist in the way that a, a Stephen Wolf or somebody is, but as somebody who thinks that the government can in a soft way, guide people toward Christianity appropriately mm -hmm. uh, while still being within constitutional restrictions uh, that are appropriate. Um, I think um, the, the difference is just sort of understanding that, that in fact um, what started in the 1940s and through the 1970s was like in many other elements of the jurisprudence in that era, a vast departure from, American history, from American constitutional practice, from the way America had understood itself, and that there can't be a neutral public square. Mm -hmm. So right now we are mandating an atheist public square. And to say that we can have a religious public square, if not a sectarian public square, um, is uh, a much healthier 
position, I think, for us to be in overall as a nation. Although, of course, the details of that matter a lot. Right. Yeah, no doubt. But but uh, yeah, the, the, the point about neutrality makes a huge amount of sense to me that there's no such thing as like a value-free political square, public square that's like an absurd statement. So it's always oriented towards something because it's not neutral. And And it seems like, you know, some parents almost imagine or not even parents or even people who don't have kids but imagine what it would be like to have kids like think like, well, I don't want to raise my child with a religion um, because I don't want to impose anything on them. I'm going to be neutral in how I raise my child. But that's not neutral at all. Like to tell them, wait until they're 18 and then give them a pamphlet. And it's like, here's 1001 religions. If you like one of them, go with it. But if you don't, don't worry about it. Like that's to not raise a child religiously is in all likelihood, but not necessarily but it pushes them to cut them off from this like option where it's like the culture is already pushing against Christianity so much sure. all the time that like you could try to raise somebody Christian and it, you know, it might not work out, but by yeah. raising, I, I think there's a, you actually give them more than ultimately an option later in life by raising a child Christian than if you don't, it seems to me, I don't know, but. Uh, sure. Just, and I'd say, sure. and I'd say even beyond that, if you look at, <laughs> you know, religions that are in the public square right now, transgenderism. (laughs) What is gender? Huh? Gender is this thing that is not observable within the sexed body, Uh but it exists. It's my feeling. I can't touch it. Um, It's just this thing that you have to believe in. But what does that sound like? Right. Um, You know, and so at the very minimum, it's, there's a conservative blogger, Ace of Spades, who I quoted once and, Uh, He said, this is not the exact quote, but he says, look, I'm actually a secularist, but uh, actually, unlike the left, you know, I'm a smart secularist there. The left are very poor secularists Mm -hmm. because what they think they do is to take religion out of the public square. But what they've actually done is by doing that, they've allowed religion by getting rid of religion to, in Mm -hmm. fact, infect every single mode of their thought as opposed right. to having religion in a religious context. Um, and so I think that's kind of where we are. We have all sorts of alternative religions uh, that we're pushing or atheism, um, which is in itself a sort of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have in a non-historical and non-constitutional way removed a certainly Judeo-Christian conception of God but I think constitutionally, even a more Christian conception of God could be allowed in certain ways in the public square, although clearly we couldn't have a national Christian church or anything approaching it. And even if we could, I don't think it would be wise for the government or the, the church to do that. I mean, I think when you look at the experience of state churches in Europe, um, it kind of shows the danger of going too far in that direction. Hmm. But I do think that that government could be encouraging of these practices and that that would be a much better situation than where we are today. Right. So then that kind of like points to the the final question that you raised in the article, um, which I thought was pretty bold, uh, but I think it makes sense, is that you say something along the lines of, well, or at least this seems to be what's implied. If Christians don't start to try to take and wield at least some political power on their own behalf, there's a kind of danger that in the future – you might not really ultimately see that many Christians anymore that there has to be some like political work or political will to create like the psychic social soil out of which good Christians can grow that like, you know, obviously there, you know, there are martyrs and there are Christians who can be Christians under the worst kinds of circumstances for themselves, but that's like, not everybody has the strength of soul to do that kind of thing. So in order almost, I mean, it almost seemed like to some extent, I almost wondered like at the end of the article, it was something like, Christians need to have political power, at least to some extent, in order to save more souls. And Right. Um, that's, well, that's, that's, that's exactly what I was suggesting. That's what I was suggesting. And, and that, um, uh, you know, I basically ask at the end of the, the, the thing, if we don't incorporate some elements of Christian nationalism, can we really have Christian practice at all in a meaningful way when – we are trying to be restricted in terms of the state uh, to, you know, carving out increasingly small exceptions that will go away for how we're going to treat human sexuality, how we're going to treat 
gender roles, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really no compatibility. And unfortunately, I think the church has kind of, not all of it, but some of it, taken a kind of extreme Anabaptist perspective of, of like, oh, we can't, we can't touch political power. You know, these realms need to be just totally separate. And again, I don't want to conflate the issue of, of mixing them too much because I think it's really important that the church have a very independent identity that is separate from the state and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the kind of extreme Anabaptist um, view is not a realistic view either uh, and has a, a host of dangers. It happens to be very inconvenient or it happens to be very convenient for Christians who don't want to be confrontational mm-hmm. with the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as I put it, you know, martyrdom is sometimes required for the Christian politically. It does happen, mm-hmm. but it's not the sine qua non of Christian politics. Mm-hmm. It's not as if the only true politics that we can ever practice are this very limited and, and functionally meaningless politics of within the church, but that as soon as we attempt to apply Christianity to the broader world or modern life, it's somehow illegitimate. Um, I think that's a very erroneous way to look at kind of how Christianity should relate to the state. And that was what I tried to point out in my piece. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it was, it was a helpful piece to me. And, and, and so it's like, as you had pointed out before, or like at the beginning of the article in what you'd said here is that liberal principles allow a little bit more latitude on these kind of things than we tend to think today. And so it seems like conservative or right-wing leaders of the future in the United States need to, yeah, kind of like revisit the founding, you know, or like read sure. books like, you know, Tom West's books, like on the American founding to see like, well, like I yeah. don't know, liberalism can actually be pretty cool. It can actually support yeah. a lot of the things that a lot of right-wing people want. They just have to be understood correctly, I guess. But that's right. We, we need to understand the history. We need to understand that we haven't been taught in the vast majority of cases, the real history um, and for ideological reasons. And we need to challenge the premises of kind of atheistic leftism, among many other things, mm-hmm. um, on the right, um, and just be confident. And part of that is, is learning. And uh, in classical schools, such as sort of effort, I know that you're kind of beginning to undertake, that's an important piece mm-hmm. of going and equipping young people to, to be familiar with these things. But you also just have to be out there in the political world exercising power in a in a responsible way and understanding that particularly with with respect to christianity i mean you can i think get too close between the church and the state sure um but uh but i think the sort of extremity of separation that we're in right now is certainly not good for christianity and i don't think it's good for the state either right well i think this is like a pretty good note to just about close on um and and it seems like uh you know one takeaway from a lot of what you're saying, you know, across the topics is just like, in some sense, the ideas of what needs to be done are like really like there and ideas that aren't just like pie in the sky ideas, but ideas that can be actualized, but there just has to be like the spine and the will and the courage to like enact them in the world. Um, because yeah, I, Jeremy, I would trust you to be in charge of like, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, uh, over yeah. the United States. Like I think that the country become much better. Um, if you were somehow a legally appointed, uh, you know, dictator or something like that, that's a silly way to put it, but at any rate, right. is there, we've talked about a lot of things. Is there any closing note or anything, you know, that you were like, you know, cause in any good conversation, you know, somebody at some point like wishes they'd said something and then, you know, you sort of like go past it. Is there anything you'd either like to close with or return to? Well, I do think actually you're ending on a good note, which is to say it's it's courage and the courage to be uncomfortable and to go in places that we haven't necessarily gone recently and to mm-hmm. understand that if we are going to save the American project, it's going to require us to be willing to make some pretty big sacrifices and to make some arguments that haven't been made in a while and be willing to do things and be serious about the power and the exercise of power in ways that we on the right have often been allergic to doing over the past half century or more. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think that that is really what is going to be necessary that to people to understand there's really, there is no substitute for victory. Mm-hmm. There is no way around the bumpiness. We are not going to land this airplane smoothly, mm-hmm. sadly. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you the, the consequences of victory are going to be a lot more pleasant than <laughs> the consequences of defeat. Um, and, and I do think that we can win. Um, I, I don't just think that from a certain perhaps theological perspective where we know how everything kind of turns out in the grand scheme in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think even in the more limited scheme, um, the vision of humanity that the left has is ultimately an unappealing vision that, that can't work and won't work and doesn't work. Right. Um, and the vision of the right is in its correct permutations, a vision of what we've always needed and had for human flourishing throughout world history, not just in America, although we certainly have had it in particular here, but in many other societies. Mm-hmm. And we just need to have that confidence as we march onward in what we are trying to do and in the importance of what we are trying to do. And I think if we do that, uh, we can win. Yes. This is this is true. I believe this. Well, Jeremy, I really wonderful. I really enjoyed uh wow, this was great. Um I, I really appreciate your time and uh thank you for being here. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. Cool. Well, Montana and Jeremy Carl are out.